What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine. Welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Firs. I'm Peter Neal. My guest today is Julia Bausma, Port Laureate of Maine and author of Midden, her award-winning collection of poems published in 2019 by Fordham University Press that is inspired by the early 20th century history of Malaga Island located in Casco Bay, the devastating relocation and violence against a mixed-race community of the white and African diasporic people who lived there. Midden reveals poetry as historical documentation, the reality of racism in the history of our state, and the means by which art can communicate, evoke, and atone an exploration even of the dark side of the spirit of Maine. So, Julia, welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I usually start with a, a kind of basic question of who are you and, and, and how did you come by your avocation, vocation that we're going to celebrate and discuss today? Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. I was born in New Haven, Connecticut, and met my partner from Maine in college outside of Philadelphia in 1998 or so. Maine has been home to me for a long time. I knew as soon as I moved here that it would be my home. And it has continued to be so, and it has shaped me very deeply as a poet. So how did you become a poet? How did you recognize that you had a, an avocation and a vocation? You know, I was telling someone the other day that if they had met me at eight years old and asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have told them that I was either going to become a poet or a pirate. <laughs> and it was easier to become a poet and more socially acceptable. So, <laughs> Well, but maybe not as lucrative. N not as lucrative at all. <laughs> But no, poetry is something that's been in me for a very long time. I think it takes a long time to evolve and, and, and grow into the art form because it's a, it's a very rigorous and demanding one. Poetry has been with me for almost as long as I can remember. Can you remember a first poem? Oh, gosh. I can tell you that all of my early poems when I was about eight or nine ended with the word eternity and that... One of my first tasks in learning to revise, because I was, of course, as many early poets are, quite resistant to the idea of revision at first. The first thing I had to learn to do was to accept that maybe I should not end all of my poems with the word eternity. <laughs> well, you're writing for posterity, so why not let the subject be eternity? Uh, did you have poets that early on influenced you? Yeah, I, a friend of my family who was also a professor at Yale University came and volunteered at my elementary school when I was little. And she believed in teaching not children's poetry to children, but adult poetry to children. So I loved Blake, was a very early influence. I loved Hopkins, Emily Dickinson, Edna St. Vincent Millay, to name a few. I could see it would be a challenge to teach Emily Dickinson to fifth graders, but, but maybe not. I think Emily Dickinson was part of the, the uh, ending all my poems with the word eternity problem. 
think those were not necessarily unrelated. And, and, and Blake had some interest in eternity as well. He was sort yes. of majestic and aff- affirmative. And, and, and there was always seemed to me like a heavenly glow. And poets I was attracted to when I was young were, it was poems that were intense. I loved intensity. I was also a big fan of, of Dante's Inferno. And I think, you know, intensity remains something that is poetically important to me. Uh, speaking of Yale, there was a resident poet there. Um, perhaps I won't mention his name. And I was talking to him about creative writing classes. And he scoffed and mocked. He said, people think it's a, it's a craft. But it's no, it's not. It's a gift. And you're either born with it or you're not. Uh, and at the time, and I actually still do think that that was one of the most pompous uh, remarks ever. Uh, yes, I, I think that anybody who knows how to do something and learns how to do something well, you can call it a gift, but it's only succeeds in the context of the learning and the process. So I'm a, I, I believe everybody's a writer, and it's just a question of how they can have the opportunity to express their craft and not be discouraged from doing it. I absolutely agree with you. I'm unfortunately, having grown up in New Haven, pretty sure I know who you're referring to, (laughs) but I will also not name him. There's been a lot of gatekeeping around poetry, Mm -hmm. and, and it's something that I would be very happy to see less of. But the the fact is that poetry is is part of all our basic communications. It's part of folk songs. It's part of of, of scripture. I mean, it's part of all the things that form our our lives. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. Well, enough of our uh, (laughs) structure of poetry, the snob, the poetry snob. Let's, Let's turn to Midden, your collection, which is amazing. It's an intense, emotional evocative collection of poems that derive from this event here in Maine, which disturbs anyone who learns about it. And I came to it late. I had not heard of this incident before. And it it spoke to me just historically, that was enough until the poems. And the poems and your sort of treatment of the event contextualizes it and evokes it in a way that's uh, very, very powerful, and I urge all of our listeners to 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 get it and read it or find you somewhere when you are reading, because uh, I would look forward to hearing that myself. But talk a little bit about the event and, and how you found it, what it was, how you found it, and what it meant to you. Sure. Yeah, I know, as you say, it's it's chilling. And the stark facts, as they were, you know, it's often called the Malaga Island eviction, although I think that that sugarcoats it, you know, that sounds less awful than it is. But it, what it is really is an attempt to erase an entire community of people and unfortunately a fairly successful attempt to do so. So in 1912, Malaga Island, which is off the coast of Phippsburg, was home to about 47 people, an interracial community, people of white, black, and indigenous ancestry living together and, you know, in sort of a subsistence fishing community. And a number of events came together. The governor at the time, Governor Playstead, decided that we ought not to have such things at our front door. 
and a series of decisions were made. And in the end, even though Malaga had been their home for generations, nine residents, including an entire family, the Marx family, were committed to the main school for the feeble-minded, which is in Pownall or Gloucester. And everyone else was told that they had to leave or their homes would be burned. People took their homes down with their own hands and because they needed the materials to rebuild, you know, and then they tried to find places elsewhere where they were welcome on the mainland, which many struggled very badly to do so. There had been a school that had been built by missionaries and placed on the island, and that was taken down. It was dismantled and rebuilt, I think, as a chapel on another island. And there were It's an entire cemetery on Malaga. There were 17 graves, and these graves were, they're exhumed. They were combined into five caskets, and they were reburied unmarked at the main school for the feeble-minded. So I read a newspaper article at one point that said that the push to, to remove this community began in 1911 and was completed by summer 1912. And I read somewhere, I think in an old newspaper article, that it looked afterward as if no one had ever lived on the island. So there was just this this very deliberate erasure. And then there was this secondary, also very deliberate erasure, which is that nobody talked about this. Nobody has talked about it. And it was not really until the early 2000s when... Nathan Hamilton and Rob Sanford started doing archaeological excavation on Malacca Island with USM. That, I think, is when there began to sort of be more of a wave of conversation about it. And now there is, and now there are a lot of people engaged in educating people about Malaga. But most, many, many, many people that I meet in Maine do not know the story today. And that is that is because it was deliberately not talked about. And that is because there was a you know, so much shame associated and people who who did have ancestry from this experience, you know, their parents wouldn't talk to them about it or talk about it. So it was it was steeped in a lot of shame. And, you know, in a lot of articles and in my research, I often heard it referred to as, you know, a story best left untold. Story um, best left yeah. untold is the story of major themes in the United States that have not been told. It's irony that the paradoxes are amazing. I mean, for example, a missionary built school and yet no missionary op- uh, opposition to the fact of this dislocation? Not really. There was missionary activity on Malaga, but in some ways, I don't know. There was a lot of journalism going on, you know, yellow journalism at the time that was became directed toward Malaga. And so I've seen these pictures of missionaries on the island, you know, missionaries on Sunday. Or there's an image of, of Governor Playstead when he visited with, with all of these sort of society women and his wife alongside them. And, you know, in these big bustles and all of that. And the optics, the difference between the optics and then what actually happens, you know, it's much like today. Often people make a big fuss and then and then when things happen, people are oddly quiet, you know. 
Right. Well, you took up the voice. Before we go on and hear some of those poems, you have in your uh, afterward a kind of discussion that has two parts that I found really quite interesting. One is your internal debate about your right to do this. Yes. Your responsibility. Were you obligated to do this or was actually telling the story aloud something that you had no right to do? So I I think that's been the open question of the book or one of them. I wrote the book because I first heard about the story of Malaga. I was deeply haunted by it. And, you know, I think what a poet learns to do is to write into what we're haunted by. So I did that. I proceeded to do that. I, I did it with a, with a question always about whether or not I had the right to do so and whether it was transgressive to write this. And I think what I was trying to answer for myself is, can we ethically write beyond our own experience? You know, I want to believe that we can, but I think that for me, at least, the only way to do so is to write constantly into my own doubt as much as is into the story. And also in researching Malaga, to then write out of my research, not the way we're traditionally taught to write out of research, which is to demonstrate everything we know, but also to listen to the silence that has surrounded this story, that has fragmented the archive around Malika. I was also very interested in interrogating myself and my motives throughout the process of writing this, because I think it would absolutely have been very easy to write about this event in a way that was not ethical for me to do so. So I tried very hard to figure out how I could a second point you make in the in the afterward I thought pertained, and that was your debate about the restoration of a of an abandoned cemetery near where you live. Yeah, so I live in the woods in New Portland, Maine, and there's a small cemetery on my property. Buried there is the great grandmother of Edna St. Vincent Millay, actually, as poetic coincidences would have it. Oh. So I use the the cemetery a little bit in my afterward, discuss it kind of as an analogy for how I feel. And, and I think that this project made me think so much about the ghosts that we're walking on top of all, of, all the time and among and, and the parts of history that we're not always cognizant of, but they're there. And with the cemetery, there is this feeling where you know, it's this overgrown cemetery. And so part of me, you know, wants to fix it up. And and that's what you do, right? But the other part of me feels very uncomfortable, feels intrusive in that space doing anything. And then there is shame that develops about that because someone wants to see the cemetery and now there's saplings in it. So were you not tending it? I think that this uncomfortableness about how to deal with it it's sort of a symbol for, I think, how many people feel with history, this uncomfortableness about confronting difficult history, this worry that we don't want to dishonor or disturb the dead 
right, is, is a concern that I had. It's not that I'm afraid of difficult truths, but I don't want to transgress my place, if that makes sense. It makes eminent sense. <laughs> I always visit cemeteries. Wherever yeah. I go, I travel uh, to them. I've lived by them uh, in places, and I visit them because they are this astonishing catalog of the human drama. And yes, there are great people here and there, and you you may want to go to the to the grave of Victor Hugo. But on the ne- on the other hand, right next door is a comparable story. You may just not know it yet. Yes. Yeah. And and so every time I go to a cemetery, I look at the graves. And I try to say, all right, who who are you? And even if I don't know you, by virtue of being there, I honor you and I remember you. And cemeteries do that uh, in terms of, of essentially trying to relate to or understand human nature. This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs here on WERU Community Radio, Blue Hill, Maine, 89.9 FM, and streaming live and archived on WERU.org. I'm speaking today with Julia Bausma, Poet Laureate of Maine. Well, your poems are are challenging to read. Uh, I want to ask you along the way here to read, read some aloud for us. Sure. And maybe we should start with the title poem, Midden. If you'd read it, then we can talk about it afterwards. Sure, yes. Can we start there? Yes, absolutely. Midden. Coiled umbilical of a dried daisy petal. Toenail shell. Pilfered spoon. Three teeth left in a weasel's yellowed jawbone. Rusty fishhook still lucky, scratch of granite you chiseled from the wishing rock, words white as bones never buried in earth. For every sorrow that's been dug from you, here is a pile of rubble twice as high. Wonderful. A pile of rubble, basically, a compendium of all the tools of life, uh, the pilfered spoon. I particularly like the the idea that, well, yes, the spoon, but the pilfered spoon uh, <laughs> is a great is a great image. You know, the poems themselves are kind of like a are like an archaeological discovery in a way. They're objects, sort of bits and pieces lost but found by you, and disparate but connected. There's a kind of archaeological experience that goes along as the book unfolds. Of the 50 poems collected, the titles of 12 begin with the invocation, Dear Ghosts. And here we are again, calling out (laughs) the dead. But it was a skeleton, so to speak, of the... uh, voices that were are linked through the incident and the emotion i mean was that deliberate or did you did you see that as a kind of a collective invocation that had a structural purpose for the book itself so that series actually came into the book relatively late in its development when i started with the book 
I wrote first the more narrative poems in the books, the ones that were more straightforward. And I wrote a lot of the persona poems in the book. And I was aware that I I was not in the book in the way that I needed to yet for it to be an ethical book. You know, that interrogation that I talked of later of self, of of my own motives, of of my right was not as deeply in the book as I wanted it to be yet. It, it was in some poems, but it, it wasn't in the level that it needed to be. And I had written a series of poems in the hyben form that were very stream of consciousness that, that moved into this. So the hyben is um, it's a prose poem followed by a haiku. And I had picked that form because visually it made me think of the island and the mainland. But it wasn't working. It wasn't it wasn't carrying the way I wanted it to. And a poet friend read the book and suggested the idea of letters to ghosts. So those hybans, I used a lot of the language from them to create these letters to ghosts, although some evolved once I created the series. And I knew that those would be spaced between poems in the book as a sort of you know, as you said, a skeleton architecture, you know, a structuring device within the book to help pull things along and and also pace them and provide sort of scaffolding of sorts, but a lens through which I could speak both to my own doubt and then directly. And, And you're right, too, that the ghosts there, they are a composite of sorts. So they are, in my mind, the ghosts of Malaga, but also the ghosts of of the land that I live on, that I'm very, very deeply attached to as a homesteader and was developing a deep attachment to as I was writing this book. And they're also, you know, in a way, I think they're sort of my own ancestors because in writing about Malaga and thinking about the the way that silence and trauma travels through families, through generations, this historic trauma I couldn't help but think about my own family because I'm of Jewish ancestry. And so these patterns of not knowing certain things about my family were familiar to me. Certain silences, I don't know for sure. My, You know, I knew my great-grandmother. I knew her until I was 15 years old, but I can't tell you for sure what her her name was originally. Mm-hmm. You know, things like that that were familiar to me. So in some way, these ghosts were also my own ancestors. An example that I was drawn to is the one entitled, Dear Ghosts, I Wake Wishing My Body. Uh, Yeah. Could you read that one? Sure. Dear Ghosts, I wake wishing my body could be poured like water into the morning rust pail. I wake with my dreams still in my mouth. Through the endless pace of morning chores, I recite your names, carry them in my pocket like a charm of river stones and coiled hair. This land is fevered and does not sleep. I beg you, teach me to hear this unraveling of skin. I ask too loudly. Past the stone wall, children's bodies curl to smallness beneath the earth. I split the hollowed logs, watch the black ants spray the splitter blade, then scatter. 
Your silence is the story shocked from its hull, a dangling red jewel. The beaver bleeds and bleeds in the barn. Blood freezes its mouth shut. All day, I expect your bones to appear in my basket. So let's talk about disposition. The book contains a, a number of, of illustrations, photographs, one of which is just, talk about chilling, of a, of a young child on the island. Another is the list uh, that was compiled by the agent who was assigned to uh, remove, plan for the removal. And that list is typed out as an illustration, but you've also written about it. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about Agent Pease's defense. You know, I was trying to remember about this because sometimes you forget certain things about your process after a while. And I was trying to remember whether I saw this list first or whether I wrote this poem first. So just to clarify, the list here is, this is a list that was included in the Maine State Museum exhibit in 2012, which so as the centennial of the Malaga Island eviction, this was included in that exhibit. It was a, an amazing exhibit that was curated by Kate McBrien at the Maine State Museum. And among the things there was this list that Agent Pease had created of what to do with people. And so it's got this list of people and proposals, you know, order this person to leave, send this person to the main school for the feeble-minded, things like that. And then next to them, there are numbers, how many people you would be able to remove from the island with each family that was displaced. And it, it is, it's completely chilling. I kind of think I'd written the poem first, to be honest, but I could be wrong. The decision to include images in the book actually came fairly late. Once the book had been accepted for publication by Fordham University Press, and I was talking to my editor, and that was when I suggested including a few images in the book in lieu of section breaks. And she agreed that would be a good idea. And it felt like I picked a few too many images, so we had to cut them back because we didn't want to either risk having the images overpower the poems or risk the images being exploitive. So the balance and figuring out the balance, which images we felt comfortable including and not including too many was something that, that went into thinking about this. So to just have a few, but in a way to to both break up the poems, to give a pause because they are intense and they, there does need to be some way of, of having a break, you know, a pause. But also, this is an archive and this book is an investigation of an archive. As I said, a, a broken, a fragmented archive, a deliberately injured archive. But to have the people who are part of this archive also belong to be present in the book. 
it, it's tricky balance. And this, you know, and this document is, it's, it's really in every way the antithesis of poetry. And I think it's here in a way so I can remind myself what I'm writing against. So let's hear Agent Pease's defense. Yeah. So this is the poem that court, you know, that is positioned in the book next to this list. Agent Pease's defense. It was just math. They asked the state. So I worked the figures. Every person has a cost. Every person has a price. Divide and subtract. Which two commit, place, buy out, order to leave? I was just carrying out orders from the state. And they weren't real people. You know, not like you and me. Docked their heads. Wouldn't meet our eyes. Couldn't tell what they were thinking if they were thinking, like children. Yes, sir. No, sir. You've got to be firm. No use feeling pity. I did what was asked. The end of the day, it was just numbers. It was just math. I have to tell you, I don't like reading this poem out loud. (laughs) It feels unpleasant to have this voice in my mouth. And I should say something too about the form of the poem since people can't see it here. It's a prose poem and it goes all the way across the page. And the way I read it in that staccato, it's there's periods, you know, all through it. And those sentences are all broken up by periods. This poem is, I think it is emblematic of the way that the people in charge were thinking. They were not seeing the people whose lives they were dismantling and destroying as people. The journalism articles that I read often did not present people as people. And there is this compartmentalization that goes on that becomes the rationale for this kind of thing. You know, poetry, everything that poetry does is about connection. It's about the opposite of compartmentalized thinking. In poems, things can be more than one thing at once. We can have all of this complexity and beauty and horror in one poem. And so I think that I write poems in part because I want to write against compartmentalized binary thinking that allows for atrocity. Because I think, you know, I think that it's compartmentalized thinking that gets us to genocide, honestly. Well, and that language could have been applied to other incidents in Maine, certainly around the country, to the dislocation of the Wabanaki people in Maine. Um, and, And it relates to the questions raised by the welcoming of refugees from other races and cultures to Maine this very day. Do you think Malaga has taught us anything? Oh, I can tell you this, and the, and this isn't a very optimistic thing to say, but when I when I wrote Midden, I thought of myself as as having written a book that was about history, and then the book came out, 
And I was reading from it. I was going to readings and I was reading from it. And I realized very immediately that I had not written a book about history. I had written a book about our present moment as much as I had written a book about history. Mm-hmm. I realized that very quickly, but the moment that I can point to was at a reading and the separation of children from their parents at the at the southern U.S. border was something that was you know, of course, it's still happening, but it was immediately in the news at that time and newly in the news at that time. And I was reading a poem, there are two poems when that take place in this book, when the people who were committed to the main school for the feeble-minded are taken there. And there was a, a women's storm and there was a men's storm. So, for example, Lizzie Marks, who had a young son, he was was taken from his mother. I don't know if they saw each other again. They both ended up dying there. Um, so those kind of separations, that moment, you know, as I was reading, I read the poem that is in Lizzie Marks' voice, and then I read the poem that is in her son's voice. And as I was doing that, I realized how much I was writing, you know, had written a book that was as much about the present as it was about the past. And so I wonder what we've learned from history. I think maybe the thing about history is that we've nev- we have to keep relearning from it constantly. If we don't keep learning history, if we don't constantly confront, you know, the most challenging and terrible moments of our history, the ones in which we are are the most painful to recount and also the ones in which we feel the most complicit, if we don't constantly confront those, then it becomes very easy to think of the past as the past. And it becomes very easy to not carry the past lessons into the present and the future. Amazing. As we discussed earlier, there is this disinterment that takes place, the exhumation of these bodies. And the irony was that they were reburied, commingled, in those five caskets in the cemetery of the main state institution for the feeble-minded. Yes. Does that place still exist? It is uh, now Pineland Farms. So it is it is a working farm now, Pineland Farms. It's a pretty big farm. I think you may see their products all around Maine. And the cemetery is still there. I visited it in 2017 in the summer. A monument was erected for the people of Malaga and placed there. And I went to the ceremony that accompanied that. So it is still there. Let's talk a little bit about Evelyn Woodman, who was the island school teacher who answered a call. She clearly was a missionary lady. The poem in her voice is almost a a counterforce uh, to the eviction to come. There's a line that says, uh, the girl who could not write her name is alive with letters now, as if her whole body were an urgent message, a note she writes and rewrites. When I read that line, I, I thought about you. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> well, you know, you there you are, 
teacher, successor, writing, rewriting, with a call? Yeah, it's interesting. Evelyn Woodman is a, is a complicated figure to me. I, I read some of her original correspondence in the Historical Society in Phippsburg when I was doing research. And, and, you know, I was able to just to read some of this correspondence, to photocopy some of it. There is uh, some of what goes in here, for example, the description of the childish script with lines of X's and O's. There's an actual letter that I found that I was able to photocopy, you know, from a student to the teacher, and it's got those X's and O's on it. So I was, I was thinking of something quite specific there. But there are some little snippets of actual correspondence that I read in this poem. And the thing about Evelyn Woodman is, is that I feel complicated about her. I think there are clear villains in this story to me. And she is not a clear villain to me. I think she's someone who cared very deeply about her work. I think she, she did feel she was answering a call. But it's problematic, you know, through a, through a contemporary lens. She is, she's what well, we would we would say, right, that she has a white savior complex. I mean, there, there is the concern that she feels that she could feel superior, you know. I think there's certainly the way she talks about people at some point is very uncomfortable to me to read. So it's complicated. This is Conversations from the Point of Furs here on WERU Community Radio, Blue Hill, Maine, 89.9 FM, and streaming live and archived on WERU.org. I'm speaking today with Julia Bausma, poet laureate of Maine, and author of Midden, her award-winning collection of poems that is inspired by the early 20th century history of Malaga Island, located in Casco Bay. I have her going a little bit crazy here in the book, you know, this sort of pacing the corners of the hut. And you're right. I think in some ways I, perhaps I, I relate to her in some ways, but in other ways I very much don't want to, because I don't want to be someone who writes, who writes the story with a sense of purpose or an idea of, you know, who would come into it thinking that I understood and knew the people I was writing about or who would feel confident that what I was doing was the right thing. So in that way, I'm not like like her. But she's an interesting character to me. And I, I really struggled with the poems that talk about her because it was those were hard for me to write because it was hard for me to figure her out and figure out the ways in which I felt sympathetic toward her and the ways in which I did not, in which I didn't trust her. Right. But you were struggling with those same questions yourself, as we've discussed. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, let's talk about the cover. It's going to be hard to do that when people can't see it on the radio. It's an illustration by Daniel Minter from Portland, and it's just a, an astonishingly beautiful image. Isn't uh, it? Yeah. And it speaks so emotionally and directly and visually to so many aspects uh, of the book. Um, it has a, a kind of embodiment of figurative and metaphorical elements that are, collect your themes um, that are suggested in the shape of the young woman's face and the, 
graphic patterns of the fabric of her dress and the home images and intervening water waves that suggest indigenous design. And then there's color. And finally, there's this shape of this young woman, her head turned to one side and her arms sort of cradling a, an empty space. Yes. Yeah. And there's a poem. Yeah. The poem had been written by the time I found this image. But when I found this image, I knew, you know, I knew instantly that this was the right work for this book. And, you know, and I actually had not been familiar with Daniel Minter's work. One night I was just sort of doing like an image search of Malaga Island and all of a sudden all of his work came up and I hadn't known his work and it was just incredible. And I just, I spent hours looking through image after image, but this was the first one I saw. And I knew that this was the image. And at that point, the book hadn't, I hadn't had an offer of publication yet, but I knew that when the book was published, that this was what I, I would want and so when I did have an offer of publication, I contacted Daniel Minter and we had a long, wonderful, very thoughtful conversation in person before he agreed to give permission for this. But I just, I remain so grateful because I can't, I can't picture the book without this work being part of it. But yeah, you're right. Those lines, did you want me to say them? Um, I, 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 I want to just interject. I would have thought that he had made the illustration after he had read the poem. The fact that he hadn't is just astonishingly, the fact that he hadn't is such a, a sublime coincidence, really. Yeah. I mean, we were both off in our, you know, in our separate spaces working with the story. And then the work that was created is, you're right, it's in this direct conversation. But we didn't know that, right? We were both working on it separately. So I'll read this first and then I'll, I'll explain. So this is what you're referring to as the final section of a poem called Interview with the Dead. And it's written in different sections. It's, it's written as an interview. It has questions. Who were you? You know, how do you remember your island? How did you leave? Where did you go? And then the final question is, what did you leave behind? And the answer is, our arms spread out around it all until our hands could not meet our hands. So that's, those are the words you're referring to. And then this image of, you know, of the hands hold, cradling this emptiness that Daniel Minter made. So those, those two things were, you know, we wrote those both separately, and then they happened to be in direct conversation. And it is one of those beautiful coincidences of art and poetry. But I think it also, beyond coincidence, it, it speaks to one of the ways that I think about Midden, you know, this archaeological term that is, is the title for the book, which is also that there's a Midden of sorts created by the artists and writers who've been dealing with Malaga, right? You know, Daniel's work, um, the work of My Myron Beasley, 
there's just so many people who've been working in so many different capacities to try to preserve this memory and to bring this, you know, into conversation in Maine. So I think of my book as just one little one little piece of that conversation, one thing that I can throw into into the shell heap of this much thing that is much, much larger than me. Wow. I'm, I'm sort of speechless about it because let me ask this question. Malika today, who owns it and do people visit it? It's maintained, I think, owned by the Maine Coast Heritage Trust. I visited multiple times. There's a little kiosk with information about Malika, and there is a path that you can follow around the outside of the island, perimeter of the island. And I've been there on multiple occasions. I went there once by myself, by boat with a couple of friends earlier in the stage of writing this book. I went there um, with my friend Myron Beasley, who is a professor at Bates and created this incredible repast event on Malaga that I was, you know, so honored to be a part of and to, and to read some of, of my work there at that. It was an incredible event. I went there again with a class of Myron's and with him. So I've been there multiple times and, you know, people can just kayak to the island. It's about a mile from the mainland. So people often kayak there. But yeah, it's very much, it's still there, it's preserved, and it's something that that people can visit. If I ask you just to pick, not a favorite, but if I asked you to pick a poem uh, from the collection that speaks to our conversation, what which one would you pick? Oh, gosh. This is a very hard question because, because the poems are all different pieces of this, right? And they're all in conversation with each other. And, and a lot of them are very different, but they're all, they're talking to each other. So whenever I pick up one, I realize some, that another one's in conversation with it, right? So for example, when you had me read Midden, I was thinking, oh, this, this poem is in conversation with a poem that comes early in the book called Their Objects which is literally just a list of objects that came. And that's, that's a poem that was inspired by the exhibit at the Maine State Museum. I think maybe I will read that, you know, because I think in some ways this is part of the archive and sometimes the archive can speak louder than my words can. They're objects, medicine bottles, terrine, hatchet, Flint, bullets, shotgun shells, straight razor, fish hooks, knife, bone knife handle, clay pipes, buttons, beads, Johnson's liniment bottle, key, jug, bowl, milk pan, cup, drinking glass, nails, fish hooks, box lock, teapot, stove parts, bottle, clay pipe, comb, mug, lamp, chimney brick, 
spoons, buttons, beads, pipe bowl, plates, saucers, bottles, milk glass dish, cup, bowls, lamp chimneys, lamp handle, door hinge, fish hooks, rope. You know, if we all went to our dresser drawers or opened up the things that are our precious little possessions, uh, things that we need that we'd take with us if we had to abandon an island or a home, what would those things what would those things be? And of course, they would be those utilitarian things that are a universal utility. I mean, we all need them to survive in our way. Um, and that's one of the great things about archaeology is that you sort of open up a time capsule and you look and you realize that these people were living and making and, and doing things that were very, very similar to our own. And that's a, a kind of form of connection. So, Julia, you're, you're the newly appointed uh, Poet Laureate of Maine. Congratulations. It's an honor and well-deserved. Um, Thank you so much. I'm told it comes without stipend. Uh, but, but, but nonetheless, um, what are the duties? What, what are your obligations? What do you feel your obligations are in that role? Thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's, you know, I became the poet or I was named as the poet laureate in, in August. So it's still pretty new to me. It's a five-year term. So I'm, I'm easing my way into it and, and learning what, what it means to me. And I think it's also a position that's, you know, been evolving. I'm the sixth poet laureate. So we, we haven't had main poet laureates all that long and each one has brought something incredible to the role. I am the, the youngest poet laureate of Maine so far. I'm excited by that. I'm really excited about the way that, that poetry is part of community. And I think that's been important to me for a long time. So I'm excited to bring that to the position. We're talking here today, and I'm talking to you from the uh, Webster Public Library in Kingfield, which is a very tiny public library where I'm also a library director. So I wear a lot of hats, and I'm excited to have this be one of them too. I'm really excited, especially, you know, we talked earlier about my lack of fondness for the gatekeeping that has often surrounded poetry. So that's something that I hope very much to bring to the role of Poet Laureate is this understanding that the poetry is something for all of us and that it's a really powerful way for us to communicate, to foster connection, to understand and acknowledge and look at the complexities of things. And I think these have been difficult times the last few years, and they've been polarizing times. And I think that poetry offers a unique way for us to heal some of those wounds and to listen to one another and to engage in experiences beyond our own. So I'm excited about that. And I'm excited. I have some ideas that I'm working on that will help to think of poetry that way. And I'm excited to hear the voices of poets whom I don't know yet in this state. And even those who don't tend to think about themselves as poets, but are, you know, who are writing poetry, 
because I think the poetry is it's an art, but it's also a survival tool. It's something that people use and come to when times are most difficult for them. It's certainly been that for me in my life as well. It's very interesting to me that, that you talk about it that way because we read and we know of examples of young people who the circumstances of the world, whether it's COVID or war or financial distress, are in a, in a kind of funk. And by definition, funk is a sump of self-inquiry. You have to go places that maybe you don't want to go. It's depressing to be there sometimes. It's dangerous sometimes. On the other hand, that, that exploration is fundamental, not just to rebuilding, but to becoming. And can you, as, as a public figure, address that and somehow create a kind of cavalcade uh, whereby poetry reaches out to, to the young people in the state to show what can be found in their experience and what hope lies therein? And how can you use self-inquiry and self-expression as a way to shape a life successfully. Yeah, that's something that that really interests me and that I'm really excited about, particularly, you know, about engaging youth voices. And I'm excited about rethinking some of the ways that poetry has traditionally been taught because it's sometimes been taught in a way that intimidates people. So I'm interested in extending more resources toward it being taught in ways that are more accessible to youth. I can tell you that I recently participated in judging the Poetry Out Loud regionals competition. And there are definitely some youth in Maine who are connecting deeply to poetry. And it was just an absolute joy and pleasure and and quite astonishing to watch their performances that were very engaged and emotionally intense and and really impressive. Well, five years to do it. You can change the future of an entire generation, Julia. <laughs> I don't. Oh, yeah. No, no. I mean, that's poetry not... is an idealistic practice, so we'll go with that. <laughs> well, my theory is, why don't you just, you know, establish a, a program that, that reaches every fifth grader in the state of Maine? And you simply say, okay, every we're, everyone's going to write a poem. We're going to write a collective poem by by kids of a certain age, and uh, there'll be no judgment. Every poem is a success. Every poem is a gold star. We we know how to do that. Yeah, uh, and collectivize it. Put it put it out into the world in some ways that says that our young people are the most poetic people on earth. It's not a competition, but only we got there first, so we've set the bar. <laughs> I mean, I love, I love that. I uh, many, many, many years ago, and it, it hasn't really changed. I professed that my ideal dream job would be to travel around to elementary schools yeah. teaching poetry. Yeah. I haven't found the funding for that yet, but it's still a dream job. As someone who is a poet, because poetry is introduced to me when I was young, it remains a really important thing to me. Uh, the, forget about the money. The idea, <laughs> put the idea out and make magic and the money will follow. That's that's how it works. It's really true. I mean, you've got this beautiful 
soul and energy and imagination and your voice is there and it is effective. Make magic. Well, thank you. Thank you, Peter. That's that's inspiring. I'd like to end with an enigma almost, um, and that's the uh, the descendants riddle. Yes. Let me find that one. So this poem, which is only two lines, was initially a longer poem. When I was working with my editor, this was one of two poems that she suggested taking out. And both poems we ended up keeping in the book, but I made radical edits to them. And this one was to cut all but the last line and then to add one more line. So the poem, Descendants Riddle. What you don't know could build an island. What I don't know could fill the sea. Thank you, Julia. It's been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your time. I love the poems. I think Malaga should become a kind of icon for our thoughts about contemporary relationships and the poems are a, a wonderful means by which to approach and feel and understand those necessities. Thanks very much for joining us here on Conversations from the Pointed Furs. Thank you so much, Peter. It's a pleasure. My guest today has been Julia Bausma, poet laureate of Maine and author of Midden, her award-winning collection of poems published in 2019 by Fordham University Press, a remarkable collection of poems inspired by an historical event on Malaga Island in Casco Bay in the early 20th century. My guest for the next conversation from the Pointed Furs will be Carrie Arsenault to discuss Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains, her prize-winning story of the paper mills in Mexico, Maine, where she grew up. Milltown is at once a personal memory, an exposure of environmental indifference and consequence, and a story of resilience and social history that is authentic, emotional, provocative, and inspirational. Thanks for listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm your host, Peter Neal. May of 2022 marks the one-year anniversary of Conversations from the Pointed Furs. This and the 12 previous conversations can be found archived at pointedfurs.org, archives.weru.org, themainmonitor.org, and wherever you listen to podcasts. We wish to thank the artists, authors, thinkers, makers, and doers, as well as WERU staff and supporters who have made the last year possible. And a special thanks to you for listening.